Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is April 20th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. The title of today's podcast is, Hey, Ho, High Flow, versus Standard Oxygen for Hospitalized Children with Respiratory Failure. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Mike Falk, who is a pediatric emergency medicine attending at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and associate professor of emergency medicine at the Icon School of Medicine in New York. He is interested in simulation and medical education and recently was in Ukraine. Welcome to SGMP, Mike. Thanks, Dennis. It's great to be here. And Mike, it's been a while since you were last on the SGM. That was SGM number 194 titled Highway to the Dexamethasone for Pediatric Asthma Exacerbations. And can you just remind us, what was that SGM bottom line from that episode? A single dose of dexamethasone is not inferior to a three-day course of oral prednisolone in the treatment of children with acute asthma exacerbation presenting to the emergency department. Today, we're talking about something a little bit different, but also respiratory. And I understand you brought us a case. I did. So we have a 14-month-old boy presents to the emergency department with two days of upper respiratory symptoms and respiratory distress. He has a cough, fever of 38.5, runny nose, and increased work of breathing that started today. He's breathing at a rate of 48 with intercostal retractions and an oxygen saturation of 88%. His lung exam reveals bilateral wheezing, ronchi, but no focal findings. He is drinking well, and parents report normal urine output. He's suctioned and given a trial of beta agonist because of a history of eczema and a sibling with asthma, and there is no significant change. Despite your interventions, he continues to breathe rapidly with an oxygen saturation of 89% on room air. You're working with a very eager medical student, and she asks, Should we start high-flow nasal cannula at two liters per kilogram per minute and admit the patient? Ooh, a very good question. Give us a little bit of the background on this issue, Mike. So respiratory illnesses remain one of the most frequent causes of admission for children less than five. Some of these illnesses result in acute hypoxic respiratory failure. Historically, we did not have many treatments for these children. And they were basically admitted for observation or intubated and started on mechanical ventilation. Recently, high-flow nasal cannula has started gaining a lot of popularity. And since the early 2000s, it's become an option for non-invasive ventilation in these patients. And we've covered the use of high-flow nasal cannula in pediatrics a few times on the SGM, including SGM-228 and SGM-379. And previous research has shown that high flow can lower the rate of escalation of care, but showed no impact on admission to the intensive care unit or length of stay. And we are talking about the previous Pediatric Acute Respiratory Intervention Study, or PARIS. So, Mike, did you remember to book a return ticket to PARIS? I did. The question here is, does early use of high-flow nasal cannula reduce the length of hospital stay in pediatric patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure compared with standard oxygen therapy? And what reference are we talking about? Franklin D. et al., and the title is Effect of Early High-Flow Nasal Cannula versus Standard Oxygen Therapy on Length of Hospital Stay in Hospitalized Children with Acute Hypoxemic Respiratory Failure 
the Paris 2 randomized clinical trial, JAMA 2023. Now let's break it down with our PICO questions. Tell us about the population they included. So they looked at children aged one to four years of age who presented across 14 emergency departments in Australia and New Zealand requiring hospital admission for acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. And there was a long list of exclusion criteria that you can find in the supplemental material, but these included a couple things like craniofacial abnormalities, upper airway obstruction, cyanotic heart disease, tracheostomies, apnea, immediate high-level care in the ICU, or non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation. And what was the intervention, Mike? High-flow nasal cannula at differing rates depending upon weight. And we'll include a table in our show notes that breaks that down for us. And what's the comparison? Oxygen via nasal cannula at two liters per minute or by face mask at up to eight liters per minute. Let's talk about the outcomes. What was their primary outcome? Length of hospital stay defined as time from randomization to time of hospital discharge or death. And there were nine pre-specified secondary outcomes that we'll include in our show notes. And finally, what kind of study was this? Multi-center randomized clinical trial. And Mike, can you give us the author's conclusions? Nasal high-flow oxygen used as the initial primary therapy in children aged one to four years with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure did not significantly reduce the length of hospital stay compared to standard oxygen therapy. Moving on to our quality checklist. First question for you. Did the study population include or focus on those in the emergency department? Yes, it did. The patients in the study were recruited from the emergency department with acute respiratory illness and signs of a hypoxemic respiratory failure. And were the patients adequately randomized? Yep. Patients were randomized one-to-one into treatment and controls in blocks of 10 using a computer-generated system. One site used opaque and sealed envelopes for the randomization process. Was the randomization process concealed? No. Given the treatment used, the treating physicians could not be blinded to which treatment group a patient was placed, but the investigators were blinded and unaware of the trial outcomes until all the patients were recruited and the outcome data was locked. Okay, fourth question. Were the patients analyzed in the groups to which they were randomized? Yes. Were the study patients recruited consecutively? Nope. And were the patients in both groups similar with respect to prognostic factors? Yes. Were all participants, including patients, clinicians, outcome assessors, unaware of group allocation? No. As we mentioned previously, that's not possible to blind patients and the treating clinicians due to the nature of the intervention, but the investigators were blinded. Okay. And were all groups treated equally except for the intervention? Unsure, because prior to enrollment, children were treated in the emergency department. The treatment could have included bronchodilators, fluid boluses, or other medications. Do you think the follow-up was complete? Yes. Did they consider all patient important outcomes? Yes. Do you think the treatment effect was large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Yes. And our last question, were there any financial conflicts of interest in the study? Many of the authors had received grants from various governmental organizations or biomedical companies, including the company that supplied the OptiFlow equipment for the study. The funding sponsor had no role in designating or conducting the study, the data, or manuscript. 
Let's move on to the results. So 1,567 children were randomized, 782 were included in the high-flow group, and 785 were included in the standard oxygen therapy group. Now, they did lose a few children in each group because parents either declined deferred consent, they were unable to obtain consent, or the parents withdrew consent. The median age in both groups was 1.9 years, and overall, characteristics were very similar. All right, Mike, can you give us the key result? Early initiation of high-flow nasal cannula did not significantly reduce length of stay for pediatric patients presenting with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. And let's talk about the outcomes now. Tell us about their primary outcome. All right. So length of hospital stay was significantly longer for patients who received high-flow nasal cannula compared to those treated with standard oxygen therapy. For the high-flow nasal cannula group, it was 1.77 days versus the standard oxygen group, which was 1.5 days. Adjusted hazard ratio was 0.83. And this wasn't impacted by the presence or absence of wheezing or obstructive disease. So in terms of the secondary outcomes, we mentioned there were a lot, but let's highlight just a couple things. So the medium length of stay from the presentation to ED and the medium length of oxygen therapy was also longer for the high-flow nasal cannula group. And a higher proportion of the patients in the high-flow group required escalation to the ICU. 42.9% of the children in the high-flow oxygen group were switched from standard oxygen, while 18.5% of the children in the standardized oxygen group were switched to high-flow oxygen. Okay, Mike. Are you ready for my favorite section? I am. You ready to get your nerd on? Let's do it. Nerdy point number one is about selection bias. Now, there were 1,348 parents who were not approached for enrollment in this study. And we are actually not sure why that's the case. And one of the criteria for inclusion in the study was the need for admission to the hospital. And so this is kind of a subjective decision and maybe physician-dependent. Additionally, one group of patients excluded from the study were those who required immediate higher-level care in the ICU. Now, depending on where you practice, there are some institutions where the initiation of high flow automatically lands that patient in the ICU, and individual clinicians may have differing thresholds for initiation of high flow. But it would seem like potentially the patients in the study were kind of sick, but not super sick. Our second nerdy point is about oxygen saturation thresholds. So one of the criteria for which patients were enrolled was based on their oxygen saturations. And they had two different thresholds depending upon the study site of 90 or 92%. They did watch these children for 10 minutes to see if it was sustained. But any child with an oxygen saturation of less than 85% was started immediately on supplemental oxygen. After implementing treatment, they also had a target oxygen saturation of better than 90 or 92% to 98%. This is a monitor-oriented outcome, and we can already see that there are different standards depending on the institution for what the lowest threshold of oxygen saturation should be before starting oxygen supplementation. And we know that children with bronchiolitis can have transient desaturations, even sometimes the 70s or 80s, without really significant clinical consequence. 
And I feel like we've seen more research now suggesting that there may be racial bias in the use of pulse oximeters, as the readings in darker-skinned individuals may be inaccurate. So in summary, using oxygen saturations alone to make clinical decisions is imperfect. Our third nerdy point is about weaning respiratory support. They made an interesting decision here when it came to weaning respiratory support. While they were able to adjust the fraction of inhaled oxygen based on oxygen saturation, the flow itself was never changed, which means that when a patient was taken off high-flow oxygen therapy, it is possible that they were weaned immediately from 40 liters per minute to zero. I know weaning practices vary, but that just feels a bit aggressive to me. I'm definitely more used to gradually weaning the flow in addition to the FiO2, and it's uncertain how this practice could have impacted the results. Could this method have caused more patients to stop and then restart high-flow therapy, prolonging the hospital length of stay and time on oxygen compared to a more gradual weaning of the flow? Additionally, because the treating clinicians could not be blinded to the intervention, could there have been some bias that children on high-flow therapy were potentially sicker compared to those on standard therapy, meaning that clinicians were a little bit more hesitant to wean them? Our fourth point is about clinical judgment and confounding factors. By dividing both the control and treatment groups into those who had wheezing or not, they also controlled for a potential confounding variable in their design. One could reasonably hypothesize that patients with bronchiolitis versus pneumonia might behave differently than those who have a reactive airway disease picture. Yeah, I totally agree, Mike. And I think this makes their results more applicable in clinical practice, given the heterogeneity of the underlying conditions that were included in this study. And I do find it notable that almost 94% of the children enrolled received some kind of bronchodilator therapy. But on the other hand, because they included so many different conditions and patients were treated based on the, quote, hospital's standard emergency department management, end quote that might introduce some confounding based on what treatments the child received prior to enrollment. Our fifth and final nerdy point is about the crossover between groups. So we mentioned before that close to 43% of children in the high-flow group crossed over and received standard oxygen therapy, while only 18.5% of children in the standard oxygen therapy group crossed over to the high-flow group. This decision could have been up to the clinicians, which we think is appropriate, or changes in the vital signs, clinical exam, or patient tolerance. It is worth noting that more patients in high-flow nasal cannula were switched due to intolerance to the therapy compared to standard oxygen therapy. This is an important patient-oriented outcome to consider when deciding which therapy to initiate. Maybe this switch from high-flow nasal cannula to standard oxygen therapy also played a role in the increased length of stay for the high-flow nasal cannula group. All right, Mike, can you comment on the author's conclusions compared to the SGM conclusions? We agree with the author's conclusions that high-flow nasal cannula uh, did not lead to a shortened length of stay. And give us the SGM bottom line. High-flow nasal cannula significantly increased the length of stay 
for pediatric patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure compared to standard oxygen therapy. Oh, man, Mike. So not only did it not decrease length of stay, it actually significantly increased the length of stay. That's not really what we had hoped to find. Not at all. Can you resolve this case for us? You tell the medical student that you agree with her conclusion that the child requires admission. However, given the results from the recent Paris 2 trial, you would not start high-flow oxygen therapy at this time. Admit the patient as is with the general pediatric floor with oxygen via face mask and escalation of therapy as needed. So let's talk a little bit about the clinical application of this. Where exactly does that leave us with high-flow oxygen? It's very popular, but this isn't the first time that medicine has embraced an intervention with limited evidence. It doesn't seem to decrease length of stay or escalation to the ICU or decrease risk of requiring non-invasive or invasive ventilation. And I don't know, I think we're potentially being a little bit too eager to initiate it for patients who don't really need it. What do you think, Mike? I think we're overusing high-flow nasal cannula and really need to be thoughtful about what we are treating. Is it severe respiratory distress or our own discomfort? The indiscriminate use of high-flow nasal cannula can be worse for patients as it extends their length of stay. For those practicing in the emergency department, we are often the ones making the initial decision. So for pediatric patients with mild to moderate hypoxemic respiratory failure, start them on oxygen therapy rather than high-flow nasal cannula. A very nice summary. Can I add a point here? Yeah. As an official old fart in this conversation? <laughs> Why don't you rephrase it as, as a, uh, as a well-aged <laughs> senior clinician? How about we do that? <laughs> there we go. And Dennis, I'd like to add as a, quote, well-aged and senior clinician, end quote, that historically we would admit many of these patients to a general pediatric floor just for observation. The kids would have respiratory distress and they would breathe fast. We'd give them oxygen as needed. And then two to three days later, they would go home. But then suddenly we started putting all these kids on high-flow nasal cannula. And I've always suspected that it's not really doing that much for the vast majority of these patients. So it seems to me that we're coming around full circle, as it often happens at one point in time in your career. All right, Mike, what are you going to tell this patient or the family? So you tell the family that your child has something called bronchiolitis and is breathing very fast. His oxygen level on the monitor is a bit low, which can happen with this disease. Many of these children improve on their own with time, but I believe we need some oxygen for your child to help them right now. We can start with oxygen delivered by face masks. They will stay in the hospital for close monitoring, and if things get worse, we can escalate the care as needed. Perfect. And before we go, Mike... Can you give us the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time.